Well, back in September, we held a, a congregational uh, meeting where I explained to you on behalf of the elders what our goals and objectives were uh, for this year. And during that meeting, I mentioned that one of our goals for this year was to begin reviewing several points in our church's constitution and bylaws in order to make sure that that document accurately reflects the way that we as elders intend to lead the church. Now, at the time, I didn't get into detail about which points specifically were going to be under examination. I mentioned a couple here and there, but I didn't get into all of them. And I said that as we made those changes, uh, that I would announce them to you, and if it seemed necessary, uh, even take time out of our regular preaching schedule to explain them. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm not going to be in Matthew uh, this morning. I'm not even going to necessarily preach a sermon per se. Instead, what I'm going to do is explain a change that we intend to make in our bylaws. And that change has to do with our position on the relationship between baptism and church membership. To be more specific, it has to do with our requirement concerning the way that baptism is performed, which is often called the mode of baptism. Remember that phrase. I'm going to be using it a lot. The way that baptism is performed is often called the mode of baptism. Our bylaws currently state that we require baptism by immersion for membership, meaning that currently a person must have been fully submerged under the water when they were baptized. They must be baptized by that mode, by immersion, before they can be a member of our church. And what I'm going to explain today is why we would like to take that requirement out of our bylaws. We would like to amend our bylaws so that we could accept as members those who were sprinkled, uh, which is often known as baptism baptism by aspersion, or uh, those who had water poured on them, which is known as baptism by effusion. Again, remember those two terms. I'm going to be using them. Baptism by aspersion and effusion, that's sprinkling and pouring. We would like to amend our bylaws to say that we are willing to accept those who have been baptized by either of these modes when they were baptized as believers. And that last part is very important here. As I'll explain in a few moments, the purpose of this change is not to open up membership to those who are baptized as infants only. Rather, we're attempting to open up membership to those who have been baptized by mode other than immersion as believers. Now, before we get into this, I just want to point out, depending on your church background, what I just said might sound ridiculous. After all, it sounds like we're drawing a pretty fine line here, and to be specific about drawing that line for one, and then to make a big deal out of it by spending a whole Sunday discussing it for two, that can sound a little overboard. If it were 2005 right now, and and I were sitting in the pew listening to another preacher say what I just said right there, I probably would have rolled my eyes or even chuckled to myself thinking, what's the big deal? Sprinkling, pouring, dunking, who cares, right? This This is asinine. This is completely inconsequential. This does not matter. There are bigger fish out there to fry. What a, what a silly thing to get tied up in knots about. Well, that may have been my response 10 years ago, and depending on your church background, that might even be your response today. But I can tell you now, I would have been wrong 10 years ago. This issue matters. Getting baptism right matters, and more than you may realize. In fact, it matters for no other reason than the fact that Christ commanded baptism. 
At his great commission, Jesus told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus commanded baptism, and he not only commanded baptism, but he also told his disciples to teach the church to observe all that he commanded them. Obviously, this means that if you think that Jesus commanded a certain mode of baptism, then this issue matters. It's a matter of obedience to Christ, and that's obviously not an asinine or inconsequential issue. Jesus only gave two ordinances, two kind of official religious observances to the church, uh, and those are baptism and the Lord's table. So we should probably make sure we get those two things right if we want to honor Christ. These are things that we should all consider seriously just as a matter of obedience. And there are other reasons why we should want to get baptism right as well. Believe it or not, churches have divided. People have even died defending a right interpretation on both of these ordinances. And that's because there's actually quite a bit at stake stake doctrinally, theologically in these ordinances. And I hope even some of that will will be on display a little bit as we go through this um, time together today. But at the very least, this topic matters because Christ commanded baptism. So regardless of what you may think at first, this isn't silly. Getting the ordinances right isn't silly. If we take obedience to Christ seriously, then we need to get the practice of these things right. We've actually started wrestling with the right relationship between these ordinances kind of off and on uh, about a year ago because this matters. And we've been, we've been working through it again off and on for about a year because this matters. We want to get this right. And what we're saying today is that we don't think our bylaws as they're currently constructed, are all the way there on this point. While we could not admit someone into membership who is baptized by aspersion or effusion right now, as our bylaws are written, what we're saying is that under the right circumstances, we think it is okay to admit such a person into membership, provided that their baptism was a believing baptism, meaning that it was a baptism performed as an expression of their faith in Jesus Christ. So we want to amend our bylaws to reflect that position. And what I want to do this morning is explain that decision. I want to help you understand why we're making this change. And I want to do this because depending on what your position is on this issue, this may actually be a pretty significant change that can affect you directly. Understand, what we're saying is that we will accept into membership those who have been baptized by other modes. And this matters because when we accept someone into membership, we're saying that they should now be recognized as being in fellowship with each and every one of you who are members of this church. I think most of you probably already have a general idea of how membership works in our church. The the congregation doesn't vote on membership here. The elders do. And the congregation then accepts those who have been declared to be members by the elders as fellow members of the church. Well, if you disagree with this change in our bylaws, then it means that you might not be able to affirm some people that we're bringing into fellowship going forward. Like, we could end up admitting people into membership that you're not willing to treat as fellow members of the church. Obviously, that might cause you to rethink whether or not you want to maintain your own membership at this church. That's a big deal. And that's why we're taking a whole Sunday to walk through this issue with you. We want you to understand this change, and we want you to understand it so that hopefully you can agree with us on it and continue to affirm those that we met in the membership here in the future. Now, this subject can end up being a pretty complicated issue. 
Again, we've been wrestling over this point for around a year now, and that's because there are a lot of different concepts in play when you make a decision like this. Again, a lot is at stake in terms of doctrine and practice when you start playing around with this issue. And I've wrestled all week about how to best present those issues to you today in a way that's both succinct and comprehensible, and I've come to the conclusion that probably the best order here is to start with an explanation of baptism first. I want to show you however briefly what baptism is according to the Scriptures. And then based on that discussion, I want to show you the changes that we would like to make in the bylaws and explain why we're making those changes in light of that definition. That's the second part of today's discussion. I want to take the the biblical definition of baptism and then explain for you the challenges that we've faced as elders as we've tried to apply that definition to the process of church membership and how those challenges have led us to make this kind of a change in our bylaws. Then finally, in the third part of our discussion, which is going to be the shortest part, I want to discuss where we go from here. What's the plan moving forward? We'll talk about that to close. So that being said, let's go ahead and get started with the first part of our discussion, which pertains to the definition of baptism. What is baptism? Let me go ahead and start here with the definition first, and then I'll, I'll try to briefly explain that, what that definition is saying and where it comes from in the Scripture. So what is baptism? We believe that baptism is properly defined as follows. Baptism, this is just a quote that I, a quote that I kind of, a, a definition that I've kind of come to a, a few years back, and I'll just kind of quote it. Baptism is a symbolic statement of complete identification with Jesus Christ as the Messiah and with His church by one who has been transformed by Him through the Spirit and who awaits His second coming. Again, I gave that definition of baptism to our church in a class on baptism not long after we got started here, and that would still be how we would define baptism today. Let me repeat it one more time. Baptism is a symbolic statement of complete identification with Jesus Christ as the Messiah and with His church by one who has been transformed by Him through the Holy Spirit and who awaits His second coming. Now, obviously, there's a lot in that definition to unpack, and I'm not going to have the time to get real in-depth here today. I actually spent about three weeks unpacking that definition when I taught on this subject three years ago. Uh, I have less than half of a message, half of a sermon uh, to do that today. So for today, I'm going to have to be to, to basically assume that you're with me on, on some of the more substantial parts of this definition so that we can focus on the parts that are relevant to the discussion about immersion. So again, what is baptism? First, we would say that baptism is a symbolic statement. That is to say, it represents something else. In other words, whether you sprinkle or you pour or you dunk, there's nothing that is actually spiritually effective about baptism, meaning that that baptism doesn't change or transform a person or their spiritual status before God in any way. It is a secondary act that represents what has already occurred in the person that is being baptized. Some denominations teach that baptism is spiritually effective. They would say that a person receives the Holy Spirit when they were baptized, like the act of baptism actually causes that. Or they would say that it is a means of grace, like forgiveness of sins occurs at baptism. A person's sins are actually washed away at baptism, and without baptism, sins are not remitted. We would disagree with that point, as would some who hold to sprinkling or even infant baptism. 
Presbyterians, for instance, believe in infant baptism, which conveys a view of baptism that is actually very different from ours. And yet they do not believe that baptism is spiritually effective in any way. Like the child isn't forgiven when they're baptized, and they're not born again, baptism is a symbol that points to something else. They would actually be in agreement with us on this point. Baptism is symbolic. So this is one part of our definition on baptism. Baptism is symbolic, meaning that it points to something else. I'll explain why I say this as we go, but understand this is a key point in this discussion. I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Baptism is symbolic, which means that it points to something else. So what is it symbolic of? Well, we would say that it is symbolic of A, a person's identification with Christ, and B, their hope in His second coming. Probably the best place to draw this from is Romans 6, 1-11. If you would, please turn there. And just to bring you up to speed as you turn there, um, up to this point in Romans, Paul has argued that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And now, as Paul gets to chapter 6, he's responding to those points, or he's responding to people who would say in response to those points, so you're saying it doesn't matter whether or not we sin. And Paul says, no way, that's not what I'm saying at all. And he starts in verse 1 by saying, what shall we say then? Are are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? He says, look, we die to sin, right? So, no, we're not going to stay in our sin. And he continues to explain that point in verses 3 to 5, saying, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. He says, look, don't you know that, that those who are baptized into Christ, and that appears to be a reference to actual physical baptism here. Again, some would disagree. Presbyterians would disagree with me on this point. But I believe that in this instance, it, they're wrong. This is actual physical water baptism that's taking place. And he says, don't you know that those who are baptized into Christ were baptized in His death? And the point here is that the person who was baptized identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in their baptism. You see this explained in verse 4 where he says, we were buried with Christ by baptism into His death. You can see the symbolic part of baptism at play here. When I was baptized, I was not actually, literally buried with Christ. Right? But I was symbolically buried with Him in His death. And Paul says that this happened, second half of verse 4, which he then goes on to expound in verses 6 through 11, so that we might also walk in newness of life by participating in his resurrection. In other words, the hypothetical opponent to Paul is saying, so we've been forgiven by Christ. That means it doesn't matter how we live, right? We can sin all we want. And Paul says, absolutely not. That goes against the whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection which is to have us die to our old way of life and then rise again to a new way of life. And he uses baptism as an illustration of this theological point. When we identify with Christ in baptism, we not only identify with His death, 
so that we might also share in the fruit of His sacrifice, which is His resurrection of the dead. And we do this so that being raised, we might walk in newness of life. Like even now, I am to die to my former manner of life, my life apart from Christ, and now I am raised in His name as a Christian with a new master, so to speak, Jesus Christ, and I now live for Him rather than for my sin. That's what's communicated in baptism. This, by the way, is also uh, why I say that baptism depicts someone that has been transformed by Christ in that definition that I gave you a moment ago. Baptism is a picture of repentance. John the Baptist declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand as he baptized the people of Israel. Peter ends his sermon on the uh, sermon at Pentecost by telling the people, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And they did this because baptism was understood to be an act of repentance. The one who is baptized is declaring that they are ending an old way of life and they're beginning a new one that is defined by their new relationship, their identification with Jesus Christ. This is why people are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, according to Matthew 28. An identification is taking place in baptism. And it is one that points to a new way of life. This means that the person has placed their trust in Jesus Christ, meaning that they've place their hope in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Peter says that baptism corresponds to Christ being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit in 1 Peter 3. And he says that this now saves us not because it is a physical removal of dirt from the body. Again, this is a symbolic act, one that makes, quote, an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, the idea is that the baptized identify with with Jesus' death and resurrection. They declare their faith in His saving power. And it is because of this appeal, Peter says, that they will be forgiven of their sins. So baptism is a physical picture of a person's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. A person who is baptized declares their union with Christ, Romans 6.5, and it's on the basis of this union that they have reason to believe that they will be raised from the dead. It's an act that is strongly, strongly tied with a person's hope in Christ's resurrection. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15.29, as he defends the future resurrection of the dead, he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Point being... Whatever you think Paul is referring to when he speaks of people being baptized on behalf of the dead, he's saying that if the dead are not raised, the baptisms are meaningless. In other words, no resurrection, no baptism. This is how strongly baptism is tied with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, were there baptisms performed before Jesus' death and resurrection? Yes. And in this sense, the first baptisms... The baptism performed by John, for instance, could not have been a symbol of this. But baptism certainly took on this meaning in the Christian community after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which perhaps even helps explain why Paul expects disciples of John who have not been been baptized in Christ's name to be re-baptized in Acts 19. So again, this is part of what baptism means. It is an identification with Christ 
that not only declares a person's hope of sharing in his resurrection, but which also demonstrates the disciples' intent through this identification to walk in newness of life. And there are other truths that are represented by baptism as well. Baptism is most definitely, most definitely associated with new birth by the Spirit. Likewise, it is a symbol of a person's inclusion in God's new covenant community. This would have been apparent in the meaning of John's baptism, for instance. He told the people that he baptized them with water, but there was one coming who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Again, there was a symbolic meaning to their baptism. As people came out to be immersed in the water, which was what this word baptizo means in the Greek, uh, the word bapto means to dip, and batibzo is a, an intensification of that verb, which apparently means something like to dye by dipping. Like if you were to color a garment by dipping it into a dye, you would batizo the garment. Well, the people came out and were immersed in the water in anticipation of this immersion that would take place as God saturated them with His Spirit. And there are several other passages that emphasize the meaning of baptism as well. This meaning of baptism that that in baptism, a person was signifying that they were a member of God's new covenant community by faith in His King, and that as a member of this community, they now experienced the down payment of God's promised Holy Spirit. But it is this first point, this identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that really dictates that baptism should be performed by immersion. Yes, it would appear that John baptized by immersion. It would appear that John baptized this way because that's what baptism means. It means to immerse. And also because the church made this connection with Christ's death and resurrection uh, after his ascension. But immersion was not necessarily a component to John's baptism. God said he would, he would pour out the Spirit on His people in places like Ezekiel 39 and Joel 2, that could have been demonstrated by aspersion or effusion as well. The same cannot be said for Christian baptism. Christian baptism is an identification with the death and resurrection of Christ, and this means that the ordinance properly administered should occur by immersion. The person should go down into the water and then come up again. That is the appropriate way to perform this symbol. But, but, That being said, we must still recognize that baptism is a symbol. Again, there's nothing that is spiritually effective about baptism. As we can see with places like Cornelius and his family in Acts 11, a person does not receive the Spirit through baptism. Nor, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, does it remove our sins from us in and of itself. Rather, baptism is an appeal to God for the forgiveness of sins made in Jesus' name as a person identifies with His death and resurrection by faith. It is a symbol. A person does not literally join in the death of Christ when they are baptized. Obviously, we don't actually physically die with Him. But in baptized, we do identify with that death. A person is not literally immersed in the Spirit when they are baptized. Like, it's not the Spirit that the person's being dunked down into when they are baptized. It's just water. But when a person is baptized, it represents that they have been spiritually immersed with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, In one Spirit we were all baptized into one body and made to drink of the same Spirit. Baptism represents those things. 
It's a symbol. Meaning that the substance, and listen closely here, the substance of baptism is not found in the act itself, but in what the act points to. It is what lies behind the baptism that matters, not the physical act of baptism itself. Symbols are meant to communicate an idea. They're meant to represent a truth. And this means that when you're dealing with symbols, what matters is the message that is communicated with the symbol. What matters is that the message communicated by the symbol accurately reflects the truths that the symbol is intended to represent. Jesus has given two ordinances to His church both of which are symbolic. Meaning that there is nothing of actual spiritual effect in the performance of either of these ordinances. And yet they are given to His church in order to communicate specific truths to His people. One uh, one observance we'll observe uh, at the end of today's service, and that's the Lord's table. Again, there's nothing of spiritual effect In the Lord's table, a person is not saved when they take this table. It doesn't absolve them of sin or anything like that. So what is its purpose? I mean, if it's not changing anything in my relationship with God, then why does Jesus command that I observe this? What does it do? Well, we find several different answers to that in Scripture. It too is an identification with Christ. According to 1 Corinthians 10, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we participate in the blood and body of the Lord. This is also why we pass one loaf around during our observance of the table. Because Paul says in that same chapter that we are one body who all partake of the same bread. So this meal becomes an expression of our unity and of our fellowship with one another as a church who share in the same sacrifice and form one body. When Jesus gave the ordinance, He told His disciples that it represented the new covenant that He ratified with His blood. And Paul says that as long as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Thus the meal also serves to remind us that we are members of Christ's new covenant community. It reminds us that we've been forgiven of our sin. As rotten as we are, Christ has forgiven us. And He will come again to redeem us and bring us into His kingdom when it's established. In other words, it's meant to assure us of God's grace. That Jesus loves us, that He purchased us with His blood, and that we belong to Him. It tells us that we have been redeemed, that we've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And we are now free of sin, both in its penalty and in its power. We enjoy fellowship with Christ presently because He died for us. The Lord's table depicts that. That's one ordinance. The second, of course, is baptism. And why does Jesus give this ordinance? Again, if it doesn't do anything spiritually, then why must it be performed? Again, it comes down to the message that it communicates. And baptism does communicate an incredibly important message to the church because at baptism, a person tells the church about an invisible event, an event that the church can't see through a visible symbolic demonstration of that event. At baptism, the baptized declare to those present that uh, although they once did not identify with Christ, now they do. They have been born again by the Spirit and they've been accepted by Christ as their Lord and Savior. And now they belong to us. And we should now accept them into His body as one of us. 
This is why baptism is something that's only supposed to be observed once and at the beginning of a person's faith. It is a sign to the church that the person in question is no longer just a God-fearer. They're no longer just a seeker. They're no longer someone who's just checking Christ out. No, they've landed. They've identified with Christ to live now for Him. And so now they too should be admitted into the fellowship that we enjoy with one another, which is depicted in things like the Lord's table. Jesus has given each of these ordinances to His church not because there's anything inherently pleasing about them. Again, a person is not more righteous just because they eat the Lord's table or because they were dunked underwater. No, they were given to His church to be a blessing to His people as a way of communicating to them what He has already done. Either at the cross in the Lord's table or through election and regeneration with baptism. These are symbols to us. They are for us. To be a blessing to us by pointing us to truths that Jesus wants to show us and remind us about. And what this means is that what matters with each of these ordinances is not the way in which they are performed, so much as what they represent when they are performed. If I could put it this way, what matters with these symbols is is not the way that they are performed, but rather what the participant intends to communicate when they perform them, and whether or not what they intend to communicate matches what the symbol was intended to represent. Take the Lord's table, for instance. The cup of the Lord's table. What is it supposed to represent? It represents His blood, right? If someone didn't think about that, and they actually accidentally drank white grape juice instead of dark, or if you understand that it's supposed to be wine, and they accidentally drank like a cranberry grape juice, which apparently we accidentally did, (laughs) accidentally did a couple months ago, uh, if they did that, does that mean they didn't observe the Lord's table? Because white grape juice doesn't adequately represent the blood of Christ, or because you know, cranberry grape juice, you know, isn't actually grape juice? <laughs> Absolutely not. They knew what they meant to declare when they drank that. Presumably everyone else in attendance did as well. Nobody thought they were just eating lunch, right? Or something like that. Everyone knew what they were intending to observe when they took that cup and that bread. Everyone knew they were intending to observe a religious ordinance that communicated the participants' union with Christ. So the symbol worked. Even if it was pictured wrongly, the symbol worked. Now, say someone observes that practice rightly. Say that they they have a drink that adequately represents the blood, but then they take it selfishly. Or they take it while harboring resentment towards another brother or sister in Christ. Guess which one of uh, of those two examples the Scripture says is not a celebration of the Lord's table. It's this one. The Corinthians came together in this way, and Paul outright says in 1 Corinthians 11.20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What do you mean, Paul? The elements are there, right? That's the Lord's table, isn't it? Paul says, no. Because you are violating the message of this table when you take it with these things in your heart. 
And it's the same with baptism. What is pleasing on one side or offensive on the other is not so much how the ordinance is taken, but the message that is communicated when it is taken. The message that the worshiper intends to communicate must match the intended purpose of the ordinance. This is what matters more than anything else with these ordinances, not the manner in which they are performed. Therefore, the greater offense in baptism is not when it's done according to the wrong mode, but rather when it is performed in such a way that the worshiper's intended message no longer matches the symbol that Christ intended to to depict with this institution. So, for instance, a child can be immersed in baptism. But if that child was rushed into that baptism before they had a true profession of faith, before they were truly born again, then it is still a serious distortion of this ordinance. This is not a baptism in the same way that the Corinthian celebration of the Lord's table was not a true celebration of the table. The condition of the worshiper didn't match what was proclaimed in the symbol, meaning that the message communicated was, in short, a lie. It didn't match what baptism was intended to proclaim at all. Well, likewise, to demand that someone be baptized by immersion after they were already baptized by aspersion or effusion as a believer, when what they intended to communicate in that moment was their identification with Christ by faith, and when everyone in attendance understood that that was what they intended to communicate in that moment, this too is a distortion of the ordinance. It's not as serious of a distortion as baptizing a child prematurely, but it still distorts the ordinance to demand that they be baptized again. After all, the person is not being baptized in order to declare their newly formed relationship with Christ and His church. That was declared long ago. Baptism is the Christian initiation rite. And that person was initiated into the faith when they were baptized the first time and the church received them into the body. Now to do it again starts to imply that there's something inherently pleasing to God about the actual physical performance of the act. And this isn't true. Because again, baptism is just a symbol. There's nothing spiritually effective about it, but to demand it again when the message intended to communicate by the symbol is no longer there, that starts to communicate that there is something spiritually effective in it. It starts to say that there's something inherently pleasing about the physical act of baptism. Listen, there's something inherently pleasing about the physical act of baptism that is separated from the condition of the worshiper and the message they intend to communicate. After all, neither the worshiper nor the message has changed from the one baptism to the other, right? The only thing that's changed is the mode. That puts worth in the mode itself, doesn't it? And this is not true. There's nothing of worth in the mere physical performance of baptism. So to baptize that sort of person again, that actually begins to cut the heart out of baptism. It takes baptism from what it was designed to be, which is this symbolic initiation rite, into the church, and it transforms it into something else entirely. So that being said, how does this affect our approach to baptism and membership as a church? How does this definition of baptism affect us? Well, as we've wrestled through this issue beyond the right concept of baptism, there are actually a couple of other biblical concepts that we've tried to hold in tension. Uh, The first of which is church membership. We believe that church membership is a biblical concept and one that is very necessary 
to the life of the church, even if the way that membership is practiced is often ascriptural. And listen closely to me there. I didn't say it was unscriptural. I said that the way church membership is often practiced is, is often ascriptural, meaning that there are aspects of membership today that aren't prescribed or even described in the Scripture. Uh, like, for instance, signing a church covenant. Uh, not in Scripture, but still a, a wise practice to perform and one that we believe we have liberty to practice today. That's an example of an ascriptural practice. Uh, when you're dealing with church membership today, you're often dealing with a lot of ascriptural practices. After all, the church has changed a lot since the book of Acts. There are different denominations now. That didn't exist in the early church. Most towns have multiple churches, often reflecting different denominational affiliations. That didn't exactly exist in the early church. And not just the church, but even society itself has changed since the book of Acts. Like today, a church can get sued for practicing church discipline against one of its members. That wasn't really a possibility in the early church. In the early church, baptism in the Lord's table would have been enough to sufficiently define local church membership, but clearly that's not the case today. Point is, conditions change over time, and while the church can certainly never violate Christ's commands as it tries to respond to these changes, Christ has yet given His church both the means and the latitude to figure out how to best apply His commands to new situations. And by the way, I'm going to explain that point in, in greater depth when we get to Matthew 18 in a few weeks. Now, when we look at church membership, we understand that it is both biblical and absolutely vital to the health and maturity of the Christian. I say this because as believers, we are called to relate to one another differently than the world, and and this is so that we can grow into maturity in Christ, and, and membership helps us to do that. It helps the body identify one another so that they can know who they are committed to love as fellow believers. And it also helps elders in the same way. As elders, we are called to shepherd God's flock. Membership helps us to know who that is. Just like I, I, I uh, feed and, and clothe and correct my own kids, not my brother's kids, not my nieces and nephews, so also local church membership helps the elders distinguish between members of their immediate family and their extended family, so to speak. So without getting into a lot of detail here, we believe this matters. And this means that denying someone membership in the body of Christ has the potential to be spiritually devastating. To deny someone membership is to deny them fellowship and care with another local body of believers. It is to deny them the spiritual nurture that is supposed to come from a body of elders. To deny someone membership can essentially mean leaving one of Christ's flock loose in the world, unprotected, to be preyed on by wolves. In short, it is preemptive church discipline. Denial of membership either has the potential to mean that, or it means nothing at all. Get rid of it. So one of the questions we have asked ourselves in this process is, will we deny someone fellowship in the church who we recognize to be a genuine believer because they were baptized according to the wrong mode? Maybe sprinkling was the only means of baptism available to them at the time, and conscience prevents them from doing it again because they believe to do so would miscommunicate baptism to the church. Maybe they were sprinkled and they just don't want to do it again. They think they've been obedient and they don't think they should have to do it again. But we refuse someone the care of Christ's church for that reason. That's a very sobering question. 
I have to tell you, as someone who the Scripture says is going to be held to a stricter judgment on Judgment Day because I am a teacher in the church, that gets my attention. You read what Jesus thinks about those who cause one of His little ones to stumble, and it isn't pretty. He does not mince words. That's a very, very dangerous decision to make, to deny someone membership in His church. So that's one concept that we're trying to hold on to. A right definition of membership, which as much as possible should mean accepting everyone into membership who is genuinely a part of Christ's body. In other words, if it can be recognized that a person is a part of Christ's universal church, then they should be able to belong to one of His local churches. That's one concept that we're trying to hold on to. The other concerns our role as elders. So, we we need to shepherd Christ's flock, and this means that we really shouldn't turn His sheep away from the nurture and care of the church. There's that on one hand. But on the other, we also realize that part of caring for the church means nurturing the body in maturity, perhaps even if that means admonishing a disobedient member. Like we're supposed to preach and uphold doctrine, and then call the flock to that standard of obedience. That's actually why teachers are held to a stricter judgment in the Scripture. It's because we're standing before you as representatives of God, saying, Thus saith the Lord. If we say to you, God says this, and then direct you to do something that He did not command, or to not do something that He did command, and then you listen to us, Guess who's responsible for that? We are. Well, part of our job includes calling Christ's people to rightly observe His ordinances. Like I said at the beginning of today's message, Jesus told His disciples to teach their converts to observe all that He commanded them. That certainly includes the ordinances. So if we're doing our job, then if a brother is erring on this point, we have to call them to obedience. We have to do this. If we don't do it, then Christ will hold us accountable for that, for not caring for His flock by teaching them, by not teaching them to do all that He commanded them, just in the same way that He's going to hold us accountable for throwing one of His sheep out into the cold. Again, if you're wondering why we spent a year on this, this is why. One day we're going to have to stand before Christ and answer for what we've taught you. That's serious business. And this becomes a very difficult situation to navigate once you understand the intended design of the ordinance and then how it has been messed up over the years with the result that you have people with right intent taking the ordinance in the wrong way. What do you do there? I mean, the Word says that that we can neither add, we can neither take away, nor can we add to God's commands. So we can't just err on the side of caution and then start making extra demands that aren't scriptural. After all, that was actually what the Pharisees did, and you know what Jesus had to say about that. So that being said, what have we decided? Are we willing to admit someone into membership who has been baptized by aspersion or effusion rather than immersion? And the answer to that question is, maybe. Maybe. It depends on the circumstances. We believe that baptism is a matter of obedience and one that's tied directly to the concept of church membership. So in order to call Christ's church to faithfulness, we intend to require applicants to be obedient to this command to join the church. We intend to uphold a biblical standard of baptism in our church and we really 
think we're compelled to do that as elders. But, as we've seen in Matthew, Jesus repeatedly indicates that He expects His people to obey the intent of His commands, not the letter of the law. And this works both in a prohibitive and in a permissive sense as well. So like Jesus taught that God didn't just prohibit murder, which was the command that was established under the letter of the law, but that by extension He prohibited anger as well. God prohibited murder specifically, but the intent of the command included any sort of anger as well. Well, conversely, the law taught that only the priests were allowed to eat the bread of the presence, and yet in Matthew 12, Jesus points out that by extension, David was also permitted to eat the bread, even though the letter of the law prohibited it. Because when he did so, he was still fulfilling the intent of the law. And of course, he then used that reasoning and applied it to the right practice of Sabbath. This was the whole problem with the Pharisees on Sabbath. Through their efforts to keep the letter of the law on Sabbath, they actually ended up violating its intent. They made Sabbath a burden when it was intended to be a blessing to man. And this is something they were guilty of doing on multiple occasions. Well, from these encounters, we understand that it is the intent of God's commands that Jesus wants His disciples to follow, not the letter of the law. And so when a person comes to us and they say, I'd like to become a member, one of the questions we will ask is, have they fulfilled Jesus' intent for baptism? And to be clear, that doesn't just mean, was their heart in the right place? Did they mean well? I mean, go and ask Nadab and Abihu. Go and talk to Uzzah. Good intent alone does not obedience make. No, when it comes to obedience, it is both the heart of the worshiper and the heart of the command that matters. And so with every applicant, one of the questions we're going to ask ourselves is, did they obey the intent of Jesus' command on baptism? And since we understand baptism to be symbolic, that means we will ask, did baptism, did their baptism send the message that Jesus intended to communicate when the person was baptized? And we think the answer to that question can be yes, even if the mode was performed wrongly. So he would say, for instance, that a person who is baptized after their conversion as an adult in a Presbyterian church could probably be admitted into membership because although the mode of baptism was wrong, all participants involved still understood it to mean the same thing that baptism was intended to mean when it was performed. Now, at the same time, if that same person was baptized as an infant and then came to faith later on and was never baptized after that, we would not accept that baptism because the message communicated by infant baptism does not match Jesus' intent in the symbol. We would say that whether or not that person believes they've been obedient in their heart, they still have not obeyed the intent of the command. And so because we have a responsibility as elders to uphold this command in the church, we would not admit them into membership. They need to be baptized. And to be clear, we don't believe that by doing this, we're tossing one of Christ's sheep out into the cold when we do this. Perhaps it would be different if we were the only true church in this area, but we're, but we're not. That's not the case. There are several other Presbyterian churches here, some of which are doctrinally solid on the issue of salvation. And so if someone came to us and said, I want to join a local church, but I really think my infant baptism is valid. We would just direct them to one of these other churches that agree with their doctrine. We're not excommunicating them. We're not saying they're not a believer. We're just saying that we believe they are in error on this point, and as elders we have a responsibility to uphold this doctrine in the church. 
If they believed in infant baptism but were, but were willing to be baptized again in deference to the wisdom of the elders, we could accept them and we would baptize them. But I have to say this too, we probably wouldn't do it on a Sunday night service like we do with most of our baptisms. Because again, we want to call people to obedience while still displaying the meaning of the ordinances before the church. The right meaning of them. That's part of teaching right doctrine. And baptizing someone who's already been received into the church as a believer many years before that doesn't really do that. So we'd call them to be baptized in obedience to Christ and then we'd perhaps do it a little bit more quietly than we would with a new believer who's being received into the body for the first time. Hopefully you can understand the logic here. And, and, and hopefully you can see that upholding this ordinance in a way that displays its true meaning while calling people to obedience and maintaining a proper understanding of membership in a world where these concepts have all become so incredibly distorted is extremely challenging and it requires a lot of thought and prayer and wisdom. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all approach to this topic. The best course of action to take on baptism it really depends on the circumstances surrounding both the applicant and the church receiving the applicant into its membership. And this point is reflected in the changes we're proposing in our bylaws. If you would, please direct your attention to the back of today's bulletin. <clears throat> you can see the proposed changes there. <clears throat> we have one subtraction and two additions that we would like to make to our bylaws, both of which are under Article 12 which is the article that deals with church membership. Right now, our bylaws say under Section B of Article 12, uh, membership at Cornerstone Baptist Church shall be open to all persons, regardless of past denominational affiliation, who confess Christ as their Lord and Savior, and who have been baptized by immersion <coughs> following their salvation experience. Again, as it stands right now, that statement indicates that unless someone has been baptized, and been baptized specifically by being dunked underwater, they cannot be a member of our church. They can be someone... We recognize to have a legitimate profession of faith in Christ, meaning that we can recognize they are a believer, but we will not accept them into our church because their baptism was performed improperly. In fact, some would even say that they've not been baptized at all because baptism by immersion is the only legitimate form of baptism. That's what baptism tradition on the whole actually uh, believes, and this is why most Baptist churches will not accept those who have not been baptized by immersion as members. The elders at Cornerstone have come to the conclusion that we disagree with that position. To be clear, once again, we support the idea that baptism properly administered is by immersion, and we will continue to teach and practice baptism in that way in our church. But we are not willing to say that we will exclude someone from membership simply because the mode of their baptism was performed improperly. So we want to amend that statement in section B to say this. Membership at Cornerstone Baptist Church shall be open to all persons, regardless of past denominational affiliation, who can demonstrate a credible testimony of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and who have been baptized. Now, we've been going back and forth about how to word this statement. We consider dropping the baptism part of that statement entirely. In fact, if you looked at the email I sent out earlier this week, the statement was still worded that way. It didn't have any mention of baptism. The reason for that was because we realized that many in the Baptist tradition, again, would say that those not baptized by immersion are unbaptized. And to be fair, there's some room for that position, given that baptism literally means to dip. A person who was sprinkled or had water poured on them was not physically dipped, and so perhaps 
Someone could say that they are unbaptized. We, we reject that reasoning. We would argue that the word baptizo, or we would agree that the word baptizo basically means to dip, but at the same time, when you see Paul saying that we've been baptized in the Spirit, that we've been baptized into Christ's death, when you see John talking about Jesus' coming judgment as a baptism of the world in fire, when you see Jesus speak of His own passion and death as a baptism that He must undergo, it becomes apparent that the symbolic nature of baptism so dominated the meaning of this rite that people started to use the word in connection with non-literal immersions very early on. Even before all the symbols that we attach to baptism were established, Baptizo started to take on a broader figurative sense. For early Christians, this event would have meant more than just being dunked in water. It was a symbolic rite of great spiritual significance. And so they would have understood to be baptized meant to observe the meaning of the rite, not the mode. In fact, that's what church history supports. Writing from the very early, writings from the very early life of the church indicate that while the first Christians practiced baptism by immersion, they still didn't define the rite so narrowly as to say that those baptized by other modes were unbaptized. They accepted their baptism into the church. So we reject the position that those baptized by any other mode than immersion are necessarily unbaptized. I mean, honestly, to say that, that baptism by aspersion or effusion is not truly baptism because baptizo means to dip, that's very much like Martin Luther arguing for the doctrine of, of consubstantiation simply because Jesus uttered the words, this is my body, when he instituted the Lord's table. As Baptists, we don't believe that Jesus is spiritually present in the actual elements of the Lord's table just because he held up the bread and said, this is my body. So why would we apply that logic to baptism? The argument doesn't seem convincing. Still, many other brothers in our tradition, faithful brothers, godly brothers, would disagree with us. And so we considered maybe leaving that phrase out entirely to acknowledge that position. But... In the end, we determine uh, that that would only confuse our position more. We believe that baptism should be required for membership. And we're willing to recognize those who have been baptized by a mode other than immersion as baptized, even if we still think they were baptized improperly. Uh, we think that baptism is best reflected by, our position on baptism is best reflected by leaving the requirement for baptism in while removing the phrase by immersion. So then, how will we determine whether or not an applicant's baptism is valid if it's not defined by a specific mode? Uh, well, we'll decide it on a case-by-case basis. This is reflected under Section D, where we want to begin that section by saying the elders shall consider each applicant's unique circumstances when considering their eligibility for membership. Understand, what we're looking for in church membership is not doctrinal perfection. What we're looking for is really just a credible testimony, one that affirms that a person is both born again and walking in Christ in obedience to Christ's commands. That's it. So if we have reason to believe that a person belongs to Christ, and if we can admit them to the body while still upholding Christ's commands, we want to admit them as members. And we think that this new wording makes allowance for us to consider an applicant's membership with this intention. So those are the changes we want to make. What's next in the process? Well, our bylaws, technically our bylaws empower us as elders to put this change into effect immediately. However, because we understand that this is really a wisdom issue and not a black and white one, and because we understand that this has a retroactive effect on what our members agreed to, 
when they became members, were going to wait until the next Lord's table to finalize this decision. And in the interim, we want to encourage you to seek us out if you disagree with this change so that hopefully we can work that disagreement out. Maybe we're wrong on this. If we are, please show us. You probably know that we, that we don't tend to open up issues like this for a vote, and we don't intend to do that with this instance either because, again, we're called as elders to protect the flock, and no matter how popular that is. And so we have to do what we think is right according to the Scripture. But if you can convince us that we're wrong from the Scripture, then maybe we would change. Well, uh, maybe we would. If you can convince us from the Scripture, we would. Sorry. <laughs> so we're going to have a, a month-long waiting period before this uh, takes effect. But assuming that nothing changes in our position between now and the next Lord's table, then this is going to be finalized then. In the meantime, our discussion tonight uh, is going to be more of an open Q&A time on this issue. So if you have questions about this decision, be sure to bring them tonight. And uh, I'll try to answer them as best as I can. Until then, let's close with prayer.